0: Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global
1: orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. My name is Brandon Stiver, and I hope that you are having a wonderful summer. As we have just recently recapped uh, 200 episodes, you guys heard that uh, recording last month. Uh, We're just looking over, man, all these amazing guests that we have had over the last 200 episodes. And, you know, there's a lot of different themes that we kind of go through. So as we're in these summer months, uh, we're gonna spend some time, August and September, just looking back at some of these great people that we've had uh, join us on the Think Orphan podcast. And we really couldn't think of a better place to start than looking at some of the care leaders, care leaders, care leavers, Uh, People that have experienced care and yet now are advocating, are leading great work uh, within child care, child welfare, and of course, care reform. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. We got some great guests, guests that you have heard, but maybe haven't heard in a while. And uh, we're going to be leading off actually with our friend Nabs from Helping Children Worldwide. Uh, Nabs is just a great guy. He's a passionate advocate and a leader within this space. So uh, I'm excited just to get into this first segment, where we are talking with Mohammed Nabu, also known as Nabs.
0: I grew up in a very poor village in the uh, area in West Africa, Sierra Leone. My family, my mom and dad, we are really poor. They could not afford to send me to school, but my dream was always to go to school, because I wanted to be able to go to school and become educated and, and come out to be able to impact the society and, you know, help transform the face of the world in my own way. You know, it takes time. So my dad used to always promise me that, naps you want to go to school. Once we have uh, a bigger farm and we raise some crops from that farm, we'll sell that and pay your school fees for you to go to school. So I, I was always hopeful. At the age of six, you know, I was exposed to some child labor and working very hard on the farm uh, with my parents and uh, with other people in the community. Every morning I would wake up and go to the farm to help to you know send the birds away from the farm so that they do not eat our crops. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then at the age of uh, eight, you know Sierra Leone had a civil war by then. You know, but the war was purely in the in the, in the urban areas, in the cities, in Freetown, Bo, and all the bigger cities. But uh, by then we are living in the village. So at the age of eight, that war finally reached our village. And they reached in our village, they destroyed the village, they burned some houses, they burned our house down, and uh, they captured some of the men and women and children in the village. They asked them to be converted into child soldiers, some of the children, and the men to be part of them as well. And women, we are used for so many other purposes, you know, can imagine. And they went into the bushes to look for some of the other men and families that have gone to the forest to do their farming. And that's where I was captured together with my parents and my mom and dad. And they captured us and I was asked to become a child soldier, which I refused. And my dad was asked to join them to be a rebel, which he refused. And, you know, they started you know, shooting a lot of other people around that. And during that interim, I lost my dad as well. My dad, uh, you know, I lost my dad. And I got separated from the other extended family members, my mom and other people that we are all from the village. I got separated from them. So but I ended up spending a couple nights in a couple months in the bush, two months in the bush with different people from the village. And um, we found our way to the city. I was going to the city to look for my uncle, who was a tailor, living in the city in Bo. So, but uh, he was not there because he had left by then to go look for, for for us in the village because he heard that the rebels have reached our village. So we grew cross paths. We could not see each other. And then I spent some time. He, he could not find him. And we spent some time on the street for a year. And then finally, one night, I was rescued with other children um, and taken into an orphanage called the Child Rescue Center. And I was among the first uh, set of children that were rescued from the street after the war and brought into that orphanage called the Child Rescue Center. And, you know, there I grew up with so many other children and then went to school and college and finished college and came back and took up, pick up a job with the same organization, with the same orphanage, and I became the director of the orphanage over time. And then, yeah, so that, that's all how I went and... Since then, I, there I am, I, I became a director and I helped to to lead the transition, working with my the partners, helping children worldwide, uh, based in Chantilly, Virginia, and then uh, with the United Methodist Church in Sierra Leone and the UNICEF and the government agencies, for them to say, you know, um, the best place for these children to grow will be with a forever family, so we're able to help to lead the transition to to send those children back to their various families across so that they stop living in orphanage and leave, move to family-based care. So mm-hmm. since then, I have fallen in love with the work I do and uh, uh, just being part of supporting children, supporting vulnerable children, vulnerable families across the globe.
2: Yeah, there is uh, so much there. That's uh couple decades uh, or more than a couple decades in a few minutes right there. Um, but there's so much there that I, you know, we could spend days talking about all the different things. But it's a few things that I want to, you know, really uh, focus on as we have this conversation today. And, and one of those things is... You talked about you know, just your amazing story. I mean, that the story, there's so much more to it, obviously. You can only, if you're given a summary, you only get just snippets of what God has done okay. and the different things and just the pain and the trauma and everything that's there. And I know that you're not even able to share all of it because it does bring back some of that. Up. And, you know, that's something yep. that we need to, you know, obviously respect, but also, um, you know, know that there's so much more to it. But also know that God has healed you in, those, in, the, in, in a lot of those things and enough to be able to do what you're doing today, which, you know, he does. But, he does, but Some of the questions I want of- to just talk, focus on today and some of the things I want to focus on today really are, you know, you had the trauma as a child um, and you went to the rescue center, right? And, and when you were there at the orphanage, with the conditions of the orphaned heart that you had at that point, because both your, you know, you had lost both your parents at that point, as far as you knew. Right. Um, what were those, what were you feeling as the child, um, when you were there, when you were on the streets, when you were rescued, when you were brought into this orphanage, um, what were you feeling as, you know, the child in those situations?
0: Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. And, um, Not only me, together with the other children, but of course, initially when I went to the orphanage, honestly. I had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, nights and nights and nights of nightmares, you know, terrible nightmares and, uh, you know, stay imagine from what I have uh, had experienced in the war and uh, on the streets and the bush in the forest and with my dad passing away and losing track of my other family members. He didn't know that whether that we were living alive or not and got separated from them. So uh, I had a lot of, um, you know, series of nightmares and and kept taking people to kept taking to churches at uh, the, the village, uh, the orphanage. Uh, mothers kept taking me to churches to pray and uh, so eventually I became oh I became uh, you know a little better with that and but uh, initially when I went to the orphanage we so many the children we are very sad we are so afraid because of what we have seen just coming from the war but uh, as time went on they came and told us that we are going to go to school and I was amazed I was moved because You know, as I said, education was really on my agenda. I I always wanted to go to school. So when they told us, uh, hey, we are coming to send you guys to school. So that was on a Monday. And that's why I love Mondays, really. That's kind of weird thing about me. I love Mondays. Mondays are always my best days. I know most people don't like Mondays. But I was, uh, (laughs) oh, yeah, that was on a Monday morning. They told us, you guys are going to school today. They've already brought all our uniforms. They they wanted to surprise us. It was so great. And I felt so good about it. So um, I said, okay. So that helped to take away some of the trauma, some of the experiences I've had, and because they're playing with other children, and we started moving together, and they started providing so many things in the orphanage. You know, initially it was very, very good. It was very good when we went to the orphanage. Mm -hmm. It was very good. I'm not just don't lie about that. They were meeting all our physical needs. Mm -hmm. You know, to see whether we are sad or while smiling, or while we're they will see all of those things. We are eating three meals a day. I was not eating three meals a day when I was living out there on the street. But we started eating three meals a day. And all the meals had the correct proportion of food diet. You know, they have, you know, mm-hmm. meat, and chicken, and fish, and everything. Great. And then uh, we had 24 hours of electricity, you know, power supply. We had no time to watch movies, you know, watch them to, to play kind of thing. And then we had a playground and, you know, we have street supervision and care. We have pipe on water. We have showers to, you know, so all those things we never benefited from. We had them in the orphanage by then. So we are loving it. We are liking it. We are like, this is like a small, it's like a small heaven. It's like, a, you know, it's a very fancy place. You know, but as time went on, as we started growing, you know, getting older in the orphanage, we started realizing, we started asking You know, typical question, because the orphanage was more concerned about the physical needs. They met all the physical needs. Mm -hmm. But see, somehow, somewhere, we we felt empty inside. The Mm -hmm. emotional needs were not met. The physical looks, the sad face, the clothes, the food, the withdrawn, we see that. But the inside looks, we started asking, what was really going inside of us? Feeling loved, feeling confused? Feeling detached, feeling connected, asking relevant questions like, Am I safe? Am I loved? Can I do things for myself? Am I capable? Do I belong? Like, am I respected? Am I included? Are my thoughts really valued? Am I understood? Do I matter in society? Because when we started going to school, there are some negative connotations attached to because we are coming from orphanage. Mm-hmm. Because it is in, you know, when people come from orphanage over the years they always think that these are like they refer to us as nobody's children like no one's children i like see they we just fell from the sky somewhere and they pick us up so we are always being a little bit segregated you know against in school when something we come up in school the other students will try to push us aside they will think oh they don't know they know nothing these people are just in the orphanage they are behind the closed walls we we didn't feel in we didn't feel they were not like including us in some of the basic social activities going on. You know, we only get to to come on to the light when we perform very well in school. When the, the test results are out, if we come to do very well, if we, if we do very well in, at math or English or something or one of the subjects, they will notice us. But besides that, we are, we, we are hardly noticed in the communities, around the schools. And because we are living in the orphanage, but we are attending public schools with other children who we are not living in the orphanage. So there was always some kind of a, you know, a segregation. We are not seeing, we are not kind of embraced to be like everyone else. So we fed that pinch. So it was not really a matter of. It was a tip of an iceberg. We are the, 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 You see only a snip of the iceberg on soft, on the surface of the water, but the rest, the huge chunk of the iceberg is underneath the water. So, underneath the water, you see, you don't see that. You only see what is on top. So, in the orphanage they were seeing everything that was on top. But really, on the bottom, what was really underneath? Why were we sad? What? How? How are we feeling? What questions are we asking? What burning desires? What effort? Whether were they making effort to trace our families or children or you know connections? So, all those questions that they kept coming. So there are some areas of that, that. The orphanage was good. It was a little bit, uh, you know, like somehow deceptive because like the average life in Sierra Leone was different from when we are living in the orphanage. Mm-hmm. Everything was provided. Sierra Leone is a country that half of the population lives on less than $1.25 a day. They do not have constant electricity. Only 2% of the population has access to electricity. They do not have pipe on water majority of the people do not have that so what we are living there we have all these facilities and the outside world was not having that mm-hmm. and so when we got when i left the orphanage to a million other children it was so hard for us to really really adapt to the society it was difficult it was difficult <laughs>
1: Well, it's so good to hear from Nabs. If you guys have ever had the opportunity to meet Nabs or to hear him speak, he is just inspiring. And not only because of his uh, experience, which he shared of his time growing up in an orphanage, but because he didn't allow those experiences, that experience of being separated from his family, he didn't allow it to get him down. He just has such incredible enthusiasm. And is really professionalized even now as he stepped into that role, starting with um, his his role running the children's home later on, leading them through transition, and now really just coming up to be a premier leader, you know, within the care reform space. So we're just so thankful for this. Um, two quick notes, you know, as we just kind of reflect on Nabs' story and what he was sharing Uh, One, you know, we're going to do a few more of these compilation episodes um, and next week or I guess two weeks from now, our next episode, we're actually going to be looking at transitioning to family care. So as you heard, and you can even go back and listen to the previous episode with Nabs, which was episode 141 of the Think Orphan podcast. We would love to invite you guys back next week where we're going to be hearing from other leaders that have also led through transition, whether that's looking at the global movement around deinstitutionalization or care reform, whatever you want to call it, uh, talking with uh, Delia, and then looking at a country level, talking with Jonathan Dowell, and then uh, looking at the organizational level with Spencer Reeves. So that's what we're going to be going through in a couple weeks. So please come back and definitely check out Nabs's previous episode. Speaking of checking out other episodes, would love to give a shout out to NABs and our friends at Helping Children Worldwide. NABs, along with a a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Laura Horvath, have just started their own podcast called Optimistic Voices where they're looking at some of these things. Their first episode, they actually had Dan Hope on the episode who is, of course, a friend of the podcast doing great work at SFAC. Would love to encourage you guys to check out Optimistic Voices as well so you can hear more from NABs. From Dr. Laura Horvath, not Dr. Laura Schlesinger, however you say her name. It's Dr. Laura Horvath with NABs, uh, doing great work and sharing some stories over at Optimistic Voices. Okay, enough about NABs though, we love him, but we're going to get into this next podcast, which to be honest, uh, this was my favorite episode that we have ever done. Even as a listener to Think Orphan, I feel like this uh, blows every other one out of the water, if I could uh, be that biased. Uh, Earlier this year, we had Sinette Chan and Grace and Jerry on the podcast, and uh, it was phenomenal. So if you guys uh, would like to check out that episode, we encourage you to go back and uh, check out the episode with uh, Sinette and Grace. Uh, But we're going to get into it right here and uh, are excited for you guys to hear their stories and uh, it's really, really uh, inspiring and encouraging. So we talk about care leaving and, and how challenging that was, but you actually experienced multiple types of orphanages. What was what was that like from the inside?
3: So the in, like it's it's bad and good, but I, I can say that I was um, like I can say I, I experimented by myself because I, Experience living in the, uh, the bad orphanage almost 10 years in my like, uh, uh like, uh, 10, uh, from nine to um, 17, and then I moved to the good orphanage. But during, during in the bad orphanage, I was exploitation and I, I was work in the like hard labor, like you know, looking after the cow, um. Uh, growing vegetable farm and like many more work and all the profit is going to the market and all the money is going to the director pocket. And uh, during that time we work, but no one really care if you are sick, you have enough food to eat or, you know, uh, clean water to drink. Sometimes we drink like very dirty water from the uh, water uh, like volley and when we get sick they just left uh the kids on the floor and get help by themselves and lucky enough and and I forget to mention during that time like we was very bad neglect because the director of the orphanage like physically abused us like also like uh I was raped by the director of the orphanage. I said this uh, uh, a lot of time because I want to um, to mention that it's okay to say it. Like when I was young, I'm so scared to tell all my, like my care lever that I was raped. I was so like embarrassed and ashamed. But right now I feel like I need to talk about it and we, it's okay to say it and don't feel ashamed about it. And later on, I, I, I moved to the good orphanage and the best care, but still I feel lonely and like feeling abandoned and seeking for love and trust, but still I can't find.
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, first of all, I'm just so sorry about all of these things uh, that you underwent and, you know, for, for, for somebody like me. Right. So I, I used to work at a children's home. Uh, I, I worked at a children's home for two and a half years, uh, in East Africa, um, realized, um, that and it was, it was more like the good orphanage, right. Um, uh, where the people were more caring, um, but recognized, you know, this isn't the best way there could be better ways, right. Um, to care for kids. But we talk about some of these things. Um, and we've had people that have come on the podcast and have said, you know, there's exploitation in orphanages or or you know the prevalence of sexual abuse is there. um but for you to come on and I mean, just um, I mean the, the, I, I don't think we've ever had something like that quite before. So sonnette, thank you for your bravery, even. I mean, that's just really remarkable. and and thank you for advocating on behalf of children that are still in those exploitative um, situations. Right? Um, yeah. Um, it's just remarkable.
3: And I want to mention that there is no good orphanage. There is no good orphanage, and uh, no excuse. You know, no excuse. There is no good orphanage, and you need to put all those uh, vulnerable children in the orphanage in the good, like in the hope of good future. I experienced it myself and I also working with the care leaver. and 10, like nine of them, they are experienced like, you know, a horrible life, even in the good orphanage. So no excuse.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Sunet. And Grace, I would love to hear from you as well. Um, you... Uh... You are not Cambodian. Uh, you are Kenyan, uh, joining us from from East Africa, um, but also have a have a care experience story. Um, would you just share maybe with us just a little bit about your own story, your upbringing, and and what it was life like, uh, even when you exited care?
4: Sure. Thank you, Brandon, for having me, and uh, sorry, Senate, for the childhood traumas you also experienced. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. For me, uh, my story is not as heartbreaking as Inet, but it's also a unique story in that I was able to experience family life for quite a long time before I was enrolled in a residential care. So, how my story began is uh, as I was clearing my primary school level, I was in sort of in search of. Uh, high school support for education. And so I got enrolled to this CCI whereby in exchange of being supported for my education. And so I spent part of my uh, childhood with my family, my mother. And I used to, in my primary school, I used to see the children from the CCI that I was admitted to And I will see, wow, they're so privileged in that they have, uh, I mean, they care they are being given, uh, provided for meals, uh, their school uniform being catered for, whereas for us, it was uh, contrary to that. So there was that bit that we used to adore them, you know. But then the moment when I was told, I will join DCCI, I I was uh, in a limbo in that, I didn't really want to go but I needed the support so I had the feelings of stigmatization in that uh, the way the society views children in CCIs come from uh, often they are mostly orphans so I had that same idea and I was like so how is it about me I'm not an orphan why should I also be placed in a CCI so and this happened when I was still a teenager, you know, whereby you also have changes happening in your body trying to identify yourself. And at that point, I remember I completely changed in that my social relations did change completely because I had friends from my childhood and I cut off those friendship immediately. I was admitted in care. So being in care also was not smooth because... There was a a lot of discrimination happening, uh, mostly based on who knows who. So that also happened. But later on, with life after high school, I managed to clear. And yeah, it was the moment for me to exit. So they took me back home to my family. Uh, The other thing, uh, the expectation that we had is that, you know, they took you and gave you this hope of, supporting your education and uh, for me I was good in studies so I performed well and I was so sure they will also cater for my uh, university fees. and uh, to my surprise it didn't happen and why didn't happen. I was linked out to, I was linked up with my sponsor who schooled me in high school and when I reached out to her uh, she said, she didn't know I, that's when I actually opened her, that right now I'm home with my mom and my brother. And so she was also shocked uh, because the story she had of me so that she got to support me was that I was an orphan. So she was shocked that I had actually a family and she did cut the sponsorship and she was not able to support my Higher education. So that is how it was. And it was really tough for me in that I was so hopeful that I really uh, at once got some hope of pursuing my education with great hope, but I wasn't. It was cut short. Luckily enough, since I performed well, I did take a, a loan from the government and I was able to, yeah process my education to completion my degree so that is all about
1: me. no that's so good grace and and it's actually really important for us to juxtapose you know there are there are different care lever stories um and the the piece around education with yours grace's is, is quite um I, I think it happens more often than people realize, and almost creates like an incentive for kids to go into children's homes. Um, but uh, it, it's really fascinating to uh, to, to juxtapose, um, you know, these two stories. So thank you both for sharing.
2: Can you share with
1: us about the
2: issues facing vulnerable children in Cambodia, and uh, what are some of the reasons that children become separated from their families?
3: Most important thing is poverty, being poor and not have uh, education. Uh, Right now we face uh, uh, that because in um, parent parent mind like traditional Cambodian parent mind, they think that um, only uh, like to have education for their children only is to go to an orphanage because in Cambodia, when I was uh, young, like uh, the the orphanage director will drive his car, go around to village and village, uh, talking to the the parents saying that if you uh, give your children to my orphanage, uh, I will give uh, uh, the important um, education to your children. And then when they finish school, I will support them with the job and then they can provide you know like salary back to their to their family and because their parents are educated and they believe the director of the orphanage that is why they they send the, the children and back then uh it's it's just my like like my childhood mind and memory but when I work now, when I work with those children and the community and the society, I can see that, you know, in Cambodia, we, we experience Khmer Rouge, right? And um, we start, after, the, after that year, we start all over again, and everyone is trying to survive. And there is a lot of orphan, but they are real orphan but now it's is uh, uh and that time they uh bill orphanage, yes, we need it during that time, but now it's forty year already, and there is no more, no more uh orphan like real often it's just uh uneducated and being being poor so. That is why they separated from their family and like in a trick, you know, in a trap of uh, belief in higher education, you need to go to orphanage.
2: What is it about the orphanages that basically make you lose your identity?
4: Sure. I I'd actually started my own experience like uh, prior joining uh, the CCI, I was so much uh, involved with my church, the youth activities. I was so active in that. And when I joined, it was the moment of my adolescence. So I'm um, being changed to the normal uh, society that I was used to, despite the changes happening in my body of trying to know, you know, the transition to adulthood. Adulthood, it's also a new, a new, transition that you also as a young person uh, get to uh, juggle around so that is one and now when you're in the CCI uh, uh, first of all you faith you don't practice the same faith you used to practice you have to adopt to the new faith that is being practiced why is that so uh, most of the CCI sometimes find it easier to just uh, have you under one the religion, so that is one. People get to lose their own religious beliefs. Uh, the other bit is also in terms of also the relationship you had with your family. Yeah, so the ties you had. Uh, I know of experiences from uh, close caregivers of mine that yes, they know their relatives, but you don't even want to be associated with them. You feel like. Uh, I don't belong to them. You know, I, I belong to my own self. I have my own small world. And that is it. Even if you have uh any personal troubles, you'd rather approach any other stranger other than reaching out to you or family members sometimes who are even able to help you out. So you've been disconnected from the people who you you share blood with. So that is Something else that it pulls you from your own identity and even culturally, you know, a language, uh, ways of cooking, and so it gets lo- lost along the way.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sonette, do you have anything to add to that?
3: Uh, I yeah, similar to Grace, but um, when I was at the orphanage, I experienced like seeing volunteer coming and going into, like, into my life, out of my life, like every day. And like, you can, you can imagine all the, you know, like uh, many, many volunteer donors, supporters come from around the world and like American, French, Japan, Chinese, and yes, many more Australian. And imagine all those people come from with different culture nationality and you know so speaking different language and they come to see us every day and we are Khmer and Cambodian and we that when they come to see us they didn't like see us as a Cambodian they, walk, like, they see us as one of them, you know, they, they didn't speak our language. They, they didn't want to hear our culture or tasting our own food. They, they share us all their, you know, like their culture and everything they own. And when we, when we, when we go out to our society to live in independent or living in an orphanage, our society wouldn't accept us. They didn't accept us because they thought that, you know, you are one of those foreigner, you know, like the way you dress up, the way you speak, the your mind, you know, you are not one of us. And that is very difficult. It is why we see the gap of, you know, the, the, the gener- generation to one generation. Uh, they are tr- like trying to find themselves. It's, that is why a lot of carelivers, when they go out to, to live independent, they are uh, struggle to find themselves, to, to know about themselves. And that, that is why, like that is can be a reason they fell into depression, anxiety, and you know, later on fell into drug, alcoholic, or you know, sometimes they take their own life.
1: So that was just the tip of the iceberg with that amazing conversation that we had with Sinet Chan and Grace and Jerry. I would really invite you and encourage you, if you haven't heard it or if you need to hear it again, go back and check out episode 189 to hear the whole conversation that we had with Sinet and Grace because it was very meaningful uh, to both Phil and I. Um, You know, one of the things that we really see in their story is that variance, right? Here you have, uh, you know, a situation where a kid becomes separated in Cambodia versus a situation in Kenya. There's different things that are in play. There's abuse, which we heard about. There's uh, education. There's push factors. There's pull factors. As we think about Nabs, as we think about Sinet, as we think about Grace, and as we think about our next uh guest, Tomrot, you'll notice that you know these are four different countries. You know, four different areas of the world. And yet each of these um, stories have some similarities and they also have some variants. So that episode that we did with Sinet and Grace is a great place to go and kind of see some of those intricacies. It really is important when we talk about child-centric models of caring for kids that we really are willing to get into the nitty-gritty and the intricacies of each kid's story and just appreciate the way that Sonette and Grace really modeled that. You know, I just want to acknowledge one of the things that Sinette was getting into around abuse. And she was, um, I don't even really have a word, even after recording that months ago, to uh, express the magnitude of her vulnerability, you know, in that, and how she is using even that severe trauma that she went through to advocate on behalf of vulnerable kids. Abuse is real. Abuse happens when we're talking about orphan care, when we're talking about kids that are growing up in orphanages or kids growing up in families. Abuse is real. Sexual abuse is real. Sexual violence is real. It's something that we've talked about on the podcast before. And it's one of the things that people are really looking at. Um, Recently, I was able to be on a podcast called Theology in the Raw with Preston Sprinkle. And for him and a lot of his listeners, as people that were maybe not as informed as our listeners are, because our listeners are practitioners and experts and leaders and, you know, foster parents and, you know, our audience is very informed around these issues. So we know the reality of abuse. But for people outside that, when we say, hey, it's best for kids to grow up in families, that tends to be one of the things that they are most concerned about is saying, well, if we send kids back into family, isn't there a likelihood of abuse? And of course, we have to acknowledge that there's always that potential, right? But we also have to recognize that children that are growing up in residential care, especially when those child protection and safeguarding mechanisms are not in place, they're at even higher risk. And that was something that Preston was kind of grilling me about, and I would just encourage you guys, if you guys are looking at that abuse piece, if you guys are trying to make a case, you know, like needed to be made uh, evident in conver- in Sanette's uh, situation, as she conveyed in our conversation with her, you know, reach out to us. Um, after my conversation on Theology and the Raw, I reached out to our friend Ellie Oswald, who provided some uh, great studies as far as the prevalence uh, of abuse in residential care. And we want to make this case, right? And we want to make this case as it pertains to abuse in residential care, not because we want to shame anybody, not by any stretch, but because we do want to have that evidence base to say it really is best and safest for kids to be growing up in a family. And even when a kid's going through adversity, we don't want to change the context for their care setting. Um, away from family we just want to mitigate the risk factors that they're facing there so i just kind of wanted to throw that in there we are going to get into our next and final segment for this episode talking with tamra kabede brother you know i love you i hope i pronounced your last name right tamra is doing great work at salamta family project in ethiopia he's a care leaver himself um, and now leading a ministry around alternative family care and uh you know as I had uh, mentioned, we're going to be doing a few of these compilations. And uh, one of the ones that we will be getting into is conflict. And in Tom Rott's episode, he actually talks about the conflict in Ethiopia right now. And uh, we heard this in Nabs's conversation as well. So uh, keep that in mind because we're going to be coming back to that in a couple episodes. But right now, we're going to get into our conversation with Tom Rott.
2: But what were some of the components of living in an orphanage that an average person um, outside the orphanage might not realize? And and what were some of the harder parts about growing up in an orphanage?
5: Let me begin with that. So some of the hardest part growing up in the orphanage is that you don't have hope. Like you're just there uh, through a program. So there is no talk about uh, having your own family. There was uh, corporal punishment in most cases uh, that was brutal uh, and unthinkable. So there was no psychosocial support. You kind of figure out life on your own, sometimes uh, hitting a wall. That's how I would express it. Like You hit the wall and you learn, oh, it's there, but you, you have no... Whatsoever guidance, like other than getting you fed or clothing and in uh, getting to school, so those were uh, not being done intentionally. Uh, we I didn't have any psychosocial support. I don't remember having any counseling with all traumas that I have walked through in life. So that's been uh, mostly uh, the toughest uh, experience. Uh, I had in the orphanage. Um, Most people don't realize that kids in the orphanage are created in the image of God. Uh, uh, I mean, we are kids who have gone through trauma, some sort of trauma, some walk of life that are very difficult. And people don't understand that. So because of our behavior, people misjudge us saying, uh, different things. They don't understand that we had once a family and that we are created in the image of God. And we do have that dignity God created us with. So most people don't realize that uh, in most cases, they see us very differently, even coming out of the orphanage, going to school, everybody points at you saying here comes that orphan child. So they make you feel bad or they make you feel kind of responsible for what has happened in life when actually it's different otherwise. So those are uh, like things people don't understand about us like orphans. We're not created to be necessarily violent or aggressive or stuff. It's things that have had in in our life expressed that way because uh, uh, we are not in control of that. It's it's there within us uh, as we were brought up early in our uh, childhood. So that's something people don't understand. So people should understand that we we are uniquely made and wonderfully made by God, just like any human beings. We we are not that different. It's just some of our past experience, some of shaped uh, some of our behaviors. Uh, but if there is a good intervention in that,
2: that could possibly turn out to be very good. So what would you say... <clears throat> Our ways, and you know, we talked a lot about this in the in Pursuit of Orphan Excellence book, because I was able I was able to write with a bunch of co authors in the past. The orphan sure. stigma that is that that you just referred to there you know you go to school and and it's oh that's there's the orphan kids or there's the you know like you said it's a it's almost a second rate human. And how can we reverse that? How can we um, help people understand that? Uh, what, what are, what are the steps? And I I know you guys are doing this, some of the stuff you're doing in Salamta, but what are the things that we can do to help people understand that people are people, no matter, you know, what, what labels we like to put on people, whether it's in India with the caste system, whether it's what you're talking about with the orphan, what are ways we can do that, um, practically, uh, in our world? Yeah,
5: I would say I think it will be great to have people involved in the orphan care program, whether it's through the church or through any other organizations that are involved in this. I think getting this um, right message to the people would help that everybody's created in the image of God. And yes, sin has interrupted or disrupted that image to some extent but even worse it's what happens in the socio-economic in in the socio-political stuff that creates most of uh, these problems so we 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 are meant uh, to be having families families that we call our own so if there is a wrap around care support that comes from families, individuals, organizations into the orphan care system, I think that will change. And getting people trained on TBRI uh, and trauma-informed care, those, I think, will be very helpful to get that out out to uh, societies and people to have a better perspective that we are known different than anyone else on this planet yeah. uh, but helping um, families or societies understand change those, those circumstances that cre- create orphan world uh, I think would be very helpful in changing the mindset
1: well after hearing four people Nab, Sinet, Grace, and Tom Rott. I don't really feel like I need to say a whole lot more. I feel like Tom Rott summed it up really well. We want to love these kids. We want to give these kids opportunity to be safe from harm. We want to give these kids opportunity to grow up within family. And for those of us that are working in this space and are not care experienced, myself included, we really need to prioritize listening and learning from those that have grown up in care. And that's, that's what this episode has been all about. There's so much that we can learn about, you know, Tom Rott was just talking about how difficult it was for him to really grow up in a different culture. Earlier, Sonette was talking about abuse and grace was talking about the need for education. Nabs actually said the same thing. So we're getting these different examples And it's all from lived experience. We have to absolutely be listening to people that have exited care. And I would just even say, you know, children and youth that are currently in care, right? We're talking with adults today, but we need to be listening and talking to kids that are actively in care settings as well. So I would just encourage you guys to go back and check out these different episodes. uh, And we look forward to sharing some more of this content over the next couple months And uh, as we head into the fall, we'll of course get back to our normal format of interviewing leaders within orphan care. But we're just so grateful for all of you listening, following along, and uh, we hope that you take everything that you are hearing here on Think Orphan, that you use it to love and to serve orphan and vulnerable children more and more with excellence every single day. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.